Today we're going to be in the book of Genesis, chapter 35. God said to Jacob, Arise, and go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves and change your garments. Let us arise, then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rachel's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called that place Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again, and when he came from Padan Aram, he blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken to him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken to him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had a hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him.
It's difficult to quantify a person's life, its cumulative impact or its continuing effect. For a couple of months, we've been charting uh, Jacob's life, right? From coming out of the womb, grabbing the heel of his brother, to deceiving his father and being in danger of being murdered by his brother, his vision of a ladder to heaven, his journey to Laban's house, his years of service there, four wives, 11 sons, the journey back and the fear of Laban, the fear of Esau, wrestling with God even, stopping just short of his destination and the consequences of that last week. While Jacob will be alive for the majority of the rest of the book of Genesis, this passage, for all intents and purposes, is the end of his story. All the significant loose ends get tied up here. The question will shift from him to his sons for the rest of the book. Jacob, who grew up a homebody, has been on a long, long journey, and that journey is coming to an end in this passage. This is the culmination of his story. And with that, I want to ask you a question. What will be the culmination of your story? You see, some of you are nearing retirement. Your kids are grown up. You know, there's been failures and there's been successes. You may think that was just what it was, nothing to do about it now. But does the final chapter have to be written? And of course, there are grandkids, and I wonder if there will be a special hall in heaven for grandparents who faithfully make Jesus known to their grandkids, knowing they may never see the fruit of that labor on earth. Others of you have kids. You're in the hustle and bustle of life, am I right? Every once in a while, you have a quiet second somewhere in between when your kids fall asleep and when you pass out because you can't stay awake any longer, right? Maybe in that moment, you think about the cumulative impact of the things that you're doing today or this week. But then the noise of life comes in. There are too many bumps in the road right ahead of you to take the time to think about where this journey is going or where it's leading. I need to pay attention to all of the, 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 the potholes right here I can't think about out there. Then there are those of you who are in your 20s or younger, even you kids who are here. Listen, you feel like the end is too far away to be thinking about. That's way, way, way off in the distance. Let me tell you, it comes quick. feel like it's too far away, though, to consider it in any practical sense. And so, it's, so what I want you to understand is this. It's never too early, it's never too late, and it's never too busy to consider what will be the culmination of your story.
In fact, I'd say because it's early or because it's late or because it's busy, you need to be asking that question. The time is too important to do otherwise. So I ask you to take a deep breath this morning. Just take a deep breath with me. Push out of your mind, if only for just just a few moments here, all the concerns of the present day that distract us. And allow the culmination of Jacob's story to help you to sift through your own story. Now, the text really has three parts. There is the call and the journey of Jacob to Bethel in verses 1 through 8. There's Jacob's interaction with God at Bethel in verses 9 through 15. And then there's Jacob's journey from Bethel to his father's house in verses 16 through 29. And I want to give you three corresponding reasons why you should consider this question today. The first reason is this, our destination determines our decisions. The second reason is that our recommitment results in reassurance. And the third reason is this, our expectations aren't absolute. All right, hopefully at the end, we may have some idea of the answer to this question and what we need to do. So the first reason you should consider the question, what will be the culmination of your story is this, our destination determines our decisions. Now, you might be thinking to yourself at this moment, that seems backwards. Uh, Cody, doesn't our decisions determine our destination? Certainly, we usually think of it that way. We think, you know, I get in the car, I decide to turn left, I decide to turn right, I decide to press the gas, I decide to press the brake, and then I end up at a destination. But consider for a moment that before you do any of that, you decide in your mind where it is that you're going. You pull up your GPS or, you know, back uh, in the day when I first started driving MapQuest, right? You remember MapQuest? You know, like, get the MapQuest for that before we leave. You know, print it out. You know, You decide your destination first, and then that destination determines the decisions you make, whether you should turn left, whether you should turn right, whether you should press the gas, whether you should press the brake, to get to you to the place that you intended to go, hopefully. So rather than just lamenting that all our decisions have led us to this point. We should ask the question of culmination ahead of time. Rather than getting to the end and saying, well, man, all the decisions I've made have led me to this place. I guess this is just where it is. Ahead of time, let's ask the question, where is this story going? So that I can make better decisions right now. The chapter opens with God calling Jacob to get up and go to Bethel to worship him at the pl- that place where he had worshipped him, where he had, uh, God had come and met Jacob when Jacob first fled Esau. You remember all those years ago. So the last chapter ended with this threat of danger from surrounding peoples, right? And that feeling that Jacob had All those years ago where his life was under threat, he feels it again, and God tells him to go back to that place, back to Bethel. And this command, it's 
it's not really the best defensive maneuver if you think about it. If Jacob is feeling like perhaps the peoples of this land might come and destroy my household, it's probably best for him to find somewhere to hunker down rather than go venturing out and put himself in an actually more vulnerable position, and yet this is what God tells him to do. See, the goal isn't always what seems logically or practically the most safe. The goal for your life isn't what is always what is most logically and practically safe for your life. Why is God commanding it then? This is what Jacob was supposed to do when instead he stopped in Shechem and got his whole family into a lot of trouble. He should have been stopping in Bethel in the first place. It was his first step away from his father's house, and it was always supposed to be the way back. And so God says, no, you need to go there. Go there. Church, God has a destination for you. If you're a believer, there's a promised land, the house of your Father in heaven. That is the destination for each of us. And let me ask you, does your destination determine your decisions? Does the reality that you will spend the eternity in the presence of God in His Father's house, does that determine your decisions right now, today? Does it have any bearing on it? It ought. Two things in the text, two major characteristics in the text of those who are thinking about that destination. First, how can I glorify God right now? Second, how can I reflect God's holiness? We see this in Jacob's actions. Look with me. This word from God reorients Jacob's vision. He knows you don't come to Bethel. You don't come to the house of God. You don't come into the presence of God with idols in tow, with other little g gods. And so his first action is to clean his household of all the idols. Anything that they're putting at the level of God or before God. It's interesting. When we traveled to Hong Kong, one of the things that was really interesting to me when we traveled to Hong Kong to adopt Silas was we would go into people's houses and there would be all these little shrines in their house. You know, a little kind of box thing, you know, built up with a little statue and candles and, and the whole deal right there in, in the house. And they would worship what, whatever that was right there in their living room, right? The idols that, that we worship instead of God, it's tricky because they don't tend to have a tangible form like that, but they are real nonetheless. As Jacob comes to the place that he has named the house of God, it reminds me that Jesus said that his disciples, that he was going before his disciples to his father's house to prepare a room for them. And I can promise you that the room that Jesus is preparing for you, church, does not have a place for little idol shrines. There won't be a spot for it. And what Jacob does is he says, there's going to be no place for that at Bethel. I'm getting rid of them now. We're putting them away now. And it doesn't matter if those idols are ones you've carried for a long time or ones that are just recently picked up. Most likely the text has in view both Laban's idol that Rachel stole, you remember, all those years ago? 
but it also probably has in mind the idols that were stolen from Shechem as they murdered and plundered the city. They almost certainly would have taken the idols of the people. Jacob says, whether it's an idol you've had for a long time or whether it's a new idol, we're putting them all away. And what does he do with them? He buries them. Listen, I don't care if the idols in your life are idols you've had for a long time or whether they're new ones that you've just picked up, you need to find them, you need to put them to death, and you need to bury them. That's what you need to do. And Jacob collects all these idols and he buries them, right? And he also buries the, he also collects all these earrings. Now, now, why earrings? This was interesting. It's not entirely clear. It could be some sort of offering to God, but, but I might suggest this to you. The original audience that would have been reading Genesis, one of the very imminent memories that they would have would be standing at the foot of Mount Sinai the presence of God on the mountain, just as Jacob is going to Bethel to be in the presence of God. And remember in that story, Moses is on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, and what do the people do? Do you remember? They want an idol. And so they collect all their earrings, they melt it down, and they make a golden calf. Listen, if If our destination is a place where we experience God's glory most fully, then the defining question for our decisions today is how can I glorify God right now? But Jacob also does something else. He tells them to purify themselves. Part of that purification process is to change their outer garments. You've got rid of your your idols, but but you are impure and you need to change your garments is this kind of picture of purifying in a spiritual sense, right? And again, we have comparisons in later episodes at both at Mount Sinai, there's purification rituals, as well as later in the temple, the people of Israel would purify themselves. But the New Testament picks up on this idea as well and uses it to demonstrate our, as Christians, turning away from and being purified from sin. Ephesians 4 says this, Paul commands the church in Ephesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupted through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so this question of how our destination determines our decisions starts with how can I glorify God, but quickly comes to this next question, how can I reflect God's holiness? How can I in my life reflect the character of God? See, our privilege for eternity will be to be set apart as God's people. How are we reflecting the righteousness and holiness of God today? How are we reflecting the fact that we are set apart for eternity right now? Right now, how are we reflecting that? It's never too late. It's never too early to put off the old garments and to put on the new ones. And finally, though, verses 5 through 8 gives us two good reminders, two reminders that we need, lest we think that making the right decisions guarantees smooth sailing in life. First, we see that the peoples of the land were, in fact, a threat to Jacob. 
The implication here is that they intended to harm him as he thought that they might, and yet God, fulfilling his promise to protect Jacob all the way back, right? Remember, God said when he first, when, when he first had the vision of the ladder, God said, I will bring you safely back to this place. And so in fulfilling that promise, God puts fear in the the hearts of the people, and they do not attack Jacob. God protects him. And thus, Jacob safely comes to Bethel and worships God there. But, But this is a reminder to us that the right destination decisions does not eliminate risk. I want you to know that when you have your eyes set on the right destination and when you are making the right decisions, that does not eliminate risk. There will be still be risk. There still will be threats. There still will be fears at times as we journey through this life. And then one other event is recorded, and it seems kind of out of place. Deborah, who must have been very relationally close to Jacob since his childhood, would have been by this time quite old, and, and she dies. And it, and it seems somewhat like a, a, a kind of a random historical note, like just something that's just thrown in there. Oh, and this happened. It was sad. But I think there's more meaning to this. It was clearly a very sad event for Jacob. In fact, he named the place, that the, the word there, it means the oak of weeping. My conclusion, the conclusion I came to is this. The right destination and decisions doesn't always eliminate tragedy. Having the right destination, making the right decisions, it doesn't always eliminate tragedy. Tragedy is still a reality for us in this life and on this journey. In fact, This is exactly why keeping our eyes focused on the destination is so critically important. Because if you don't, the tragedies of this journey will knock you off course. Am I right? This does lead us to the second reason why you should consider this question, what will be the culmination of your story? And and, and the reason is this, that our recommitment results in reassurance. Again, this might seem backwards to you. Aren't we reassured? Shouldn't we be reassured and then, and then we make this recommitment? But God's kingdom is like this. You recommit to the king and the king reassures you about his kingdom promises. And that's what we see happen in the text right here. Jacob seeks to do the right things, even though there's risk, even though there's tragedy. God meets him at Bethel, and God reassures him. God doesn't say anything significantly different here than he has said to him before. He just reassures him of the same promises that he's reassured him of or that he's stated beforehand. You will now be called Israel. I am your God. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation, a company of nations, and kings will come from you. I will give you and your offspring this land. Listen, Jacob's obedience doesn't ensure God's promises, but it does assure him of God's promises. When we recommit ourselves to God and we seek to obey God, especially after some season of sin, especially after committing some sin or falling into a season of sinfulness, reassurance is exactly what 
we need. And it's exactly what Jacob needed, right? After some tragedy, reassurance is what we need, right? As one author put it, willful breaches in sanctification will much hinder the sense of our justification. Or to put it another way, when we purposefully sin, it causes us to doubt whether we are actually saved, even though we're just as secure in Christ as we ever were. Our standing with God doesn't actually change because that's based on Christ's work, not our work. But our sense of it is shaken by our sin, and it creates doubt in us. You see, sin, sin is like cotton candy. Right? Stick with me. Sin is like cotton candy. I don't know if you like cotton candy. I don't really like cotton candy. You think it's going to be great. You look at it. You think, look, it's bright colors. It's sweet puffy. This is going to be fantastic, right? You grab a big bite of it, and it's sweet for a second, but then what happens? It dissolves in your mouth. Before you can swallow the thing, it's gone. Not only does sin leave us unfulfilled where it promises to fill us, but it leaves us with a greater sensation of hunger than before. That's how I feel when I eat cotton candy. Put in my mouth, it's sweet for a second, and then I don't get to swallow anything, and I'm like, can I go get a hamburger now, please? Because I'm hungry. I want something to eat. You see, sin tells us, now that we've partaken in it, we can't come back to the Lord's table and eat the bread of life. How can we, how could you taste the heavenly fruit with lips that have been so defiled? Ah, but God is gracious. He's gracious to give us exactly what we need in this moment. Friends, when we repent and we turn away from those things, killing and burying those idols, even in the midst of tragedy, even in the midst of risk, He responds by reassuring us of our destination through His Word and through His Spirit. I will bring these things to pass. It depends on me and not on you. And one final reason that, that, that we should consider the question, what will be the culmination of your story is this, our expectations aren't absolute. Our expectations aren't absolute. Let me tell you what I, what I mean by this. In verses 16 through 29, we have three major events that happen that seem disconnected. It seemed like a, a junk drawer of Jacob's story, Right? You know what I'm talking about? Everything has a place, but then there's like that handful of things that don't have a place, and so you just have a drawer where they all go. Maybe you don't have that. I definitely have that. Maybe you have two or three of those. I don't know. We think, you know, these are just kind of disconnected things, but I think there's more connectivity here than we might first assume. You see, right after reassuring Jacob of the promises, these verses illustrate to us that God is fulfilling His promise to establish His people despite sin and death. God is fulfilling His promises. He's reassured Jacob, and and then He's showing, I will fulfill these promises even though these bad things are happening. In the face of sin and death, even in the face of our own sinfulness, even as we reflect on our own mistakes and errors. Sometimes we come to the conclusion that it just is what it is. Sometimes we can be filled with a hopeless expectation 
there's nothing that can be done about it. I've made these mistakes. I can't go back in time. Can't change that. But our expectations aren't absolute. You see, first, the first story is of Rachel giving birth to Benjamin and dying in the process. Rachel, Jacob's most loved wife, the, the, the woman that he intended to marry in the first place before everything got mixed up, she is the first to die. And, and, and you see, Rachel had prayed that God would grant her another son, and God does. And, and, and that son, Benjamin, is the only son that's actually born in the promised land. But Jacob had also vowed, do you remember, that whoever had stolen the idol ought to die. And God ties up that loose end. And Rachel dies early. And Rachel, who once unfairly cried out to Jacob, give me children or I will die, actually dies having Jacob's child. Yet even in the midst of this tragedy, there's hopefulness. You see, Rachel tries to mark Benjamin by naming him the son of my sorrow. But Jacob sees the hope and he changes his name and names him son of my right hand instead. Rachel had one expectation, but it wasn't absolute. Jacob saw that. Next, in verse 22, we have this, this one-off verse where it says that Reuben goes off and sleeps with his father's wife. Seems out of nowhere. A little bit of an extreme behavior. Most likely, Reuben's purpose wasn't because he thought Bilhah was just, you know, so dashing. It was probably rather practical. See, by sleeping with his father's concubine, he was attempting to usurp his father's authority. He, the firstborn, was attempting to become patriarch of the family before he was supposed to become patriarch of the family. And far from usurping Jacob, verses 23 through 26 show us that Jacob has a full 12 sons to whom the blessing of being Israel will be passed. See, God blesses him despite the mess that's going on. What's more, we're reminded in verse 23 that Reuben is the firstborn son. And while Jacob fails to act here, later at the end of Jacob's life, he will refuse to give Reuben the birthright because of this sin right here. Reuben tries to usurp him and ends up with nothing. He tries to grab it early, and he doesn't get it at all. But this sin opens up a riddle for the, the Jewish reader. If you were uh, one of the, the first people to read this, you'd think to yourself, well, Reuben can't possibly be next in line, but, but, but so who is? Well, that's the rest of the book of Genesis. You'll have to come back and, uh, for the next couple of months and find out. Reuben had an expectation of what was going to happen, but it wasn't absolute. God wouldn't let that injustice stand. Finally, we end with the death of Isaac, Jacob's father. Jacob is back 
with his dad in Mamre, the place of Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, where he was supposed to end up back at his father's house. And Isaac is 180 years old and he dies. And it says he dies old and full of days, which is kind of the Old Testament way of saying that God had really blessed him with a long and full life. There's no bitter ending here. In fact, what he must have thought impossible for decades happens. Both of his sons peacefully are there when he dies and peacefully put him to rest. It would have been unthinkable through the vast majority of Jacob's life that that would happen, right? Esau threatened to kill Jacob as soon as Isaac died. But here Isaac dies and they peacefully put their father to rest. Isaac's Isaac's legacy goes on in his son Jacob and his 12 grandsons. The whole Jacob story, we would never expect to end this way. And yet that conclusion is not absolute. God can change stories. I don't know how you walk in here this morning as you reflect on your story, as you reflect on your life. Perhaps to some degree you have this certain expectation about it. Well, these things have happened and that's just what it is and there's nothing I can do about it. I want you to know that that's not absolute. There's only one absolute and it's God and he decides. What you think is irreversible, God is in the business of reversing those kinds of things. You see, we think Isaac's life culminated in his sons together, mourning and burying him. We think about our lives culminating somewhere around our death, but that's not the whole story. For Isaac and Jacob, there is an unexpected culmination. You see, generations later, there would be another pregnant woman on the road to Bethlehem, a distant descendant of Isaac and Jacob. But unlike Rachel, she would make it there and she would live through giving birth to a son. And her husband isn't descended from Reuben or Simeon or Levi, but from the tribe of Judah. And this son would have no need to seek to usurp his father. In fact, he would not have to consider equality with the father, something to be grasped, but instead he would make himself a servant. And in so doing, his father would actually exalt him above every other name. He would be the fulfillment of every promise that was given to Abraham, every promise that was given to Isaac, and every promise that was given to Jacob. He would be the true Israel, the true king over all the land. And he makes a way for idolatrous sinners to be purified and forgiven. And then, and then, to put off their old selves and to put on the new, made after his likeness. How? Because he is the only God in all of history, who was dead and buried and came back from the grave. His name is Jesus Christ. And so what will be the culmination of your story? I can actually answer that question in the ultimate sense. Do you know that? I can answer that question for you. I can answer it because the Bible tells us the answer. The culmination of every story is Christ. The culmination of every story is Christ. You see, Revelation 22, 12 through 13, right near the end of the whole Bible, Jesus says this, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Your story will culminate in standing before the resurrected and returned King. 
And no matter what you think here and now, you will bow your knee. Everyone will bow their knee. And he will bring his recompense. He will right all wrongs and he will repay each person for what he has done. And blessed are those whose robes are washed by the blood and the work of Jesus Christ and who by the tree of the cross will have a right to the tree of life. But woe to all who think that they can stand on that day by their own merit. If that's our destination, then what's your decision? What's your decision today? Today is the day to stop trusting in self, and to trust in Him who is both just and justifier of sinners. Christian, if you've gotten off track and your faith is shaken, today is the day to recommit, to put your idols to death and find reassurance in the Lord and in His Word. Ah, you think, but, but I've gone too far. They're too far gone. You're too far gone. Too much water under the bridge. Too much damage done. What is will be, and there's nothing to be done about it. Listen, there is only one who is absolute. And when he spoke the words, Lazarus, come out, he who was dead walked out of the grave. The garments of death that bound him were loosed, and he was set free. The culmination of every story is Christ, and no story is over until Jesus says it's over.